0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. so You're pretty fond of me right about now, aren't you? <laughs> there you go. Norm's winking at me. That's not re- very reassuring. Good morning again. It's uh, it is indeed a pleasure to be back and uh, a delight as always to open God's word with great anticipation as we expect God's Spirit to speak to us this day by God's Word. This is uh, 2017. And so come October 31st of this year, we are going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Well, we're actually going to start early, and we're going to begin the celebrations today. And how we are going to do this from today right through to the end of November, really, and perhaps even beyond, is we're going to study together the book of Galatians, a book that was extremely significant, as you can imagine, if you're familiar with it, a book that was particularly significant to what the Reformers sought to accomplish all those centuries ago. And so we're going to celebrate the Protestant Reformation as we look, as we anticipate October 31st. 2017, the 500th anniversary, and uh, and consider in particular what the Spirit of God teaches us through this letter, this epistle to the Galatians concerning the doctrine of justification. To start us off this morning, I'm going to ask Teresa to bring up several slides on the screen behind me. There's the first. I thought a good place to start would be with Martin Luther. Seen as he is a pivotal reformer and instrumental, instrumental in all that happened back in the 1500s. And this is where I want us to begin by way of meditation, by way of reflection, and this will set us up nicely for what's coming this morning in the book of Galatians. Uh, Luther preached not his sermon series on Galatians, interestingly enough, but his sermon series, if memory serves me correctly, in the book of Psalms. He declared, God accepts Only the forsaken. Cures only the sick. Gives sight only to the blind. Restores life only to the dead. Sanctifies only sinners. Gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched. And Luther's point was simply this. We will never ever rest in Christ alone until we perceive our need for Christ alone. Now, the Lord Jesus himself expressed it, didn't he? I have not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Uh, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, We must be thirsty before we will drink of him. We must be hungry before we will eat of him. We must be acutely aware of our sinful state, our sinful condition, our, in Luther's language, wretchedness, before we will believe in him as Lord and Savior. You know, in many ways, in many ways, that very thought was front and center 500 years ago at the time of the Reformation. There were many other things going on. Don't misunderstand me. But this one in particular was front and central. Uh, this idea of salvation in Christ alone. As a matter of fact, it has been said that in many ways, the Reformation was simply a battle between two words. Two words. Which of these two words would win out? And the two words are simply these. Over here, the word and, I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry, the word over here, and, the word over here alone. That the Protestant Reformation was a struggle, a battle between those two words. Over here, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the authority of Scripture and tradition. In sharp contrast, the Reformers affirmed the authority of Scripture, alone. Back over here. The Roman Catholic Church affirmed salvation by grace and effort. Whereas the Reformers affirmed what? Salvation by grace alone. The Roman Catholic Church, on their part, clearly affirmed the doctrine of justification by faith and effort. Works. Works whereas the Reformers affirmed the doctrine of justification by or through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church pointed people to Christ and saints, masses, pilgrimages, penances, and indulgences as the way to obtain favor with God, whereas the Reformers affirmed what? Salvation, In Christ alone. The next slide, Teresa. Here's a little quote from another reformer, John Calvin. And he sums it up beautifully. He sums up the reform position wonderfully. We see, don't we? I pray we do. We see that our whole salvation is found in Christ. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other salvation in Christ alone. This is the great theme that I pray will resonate with us. I trust it will strike a chord in these coming months as we begin our study in Galatians and as we proceed through verses and paragraphs and chapters and we follow the Apostle Paul's carefully woven line of thinking and argumentation, this great overarching theme, I trust and I pray, the Spirit of God will impress upon us salvation in Christ alone. It is a truth that has echoed through the corridors of time ever since the Reformation. And it is a truth that we must unapologetically declare today. How can a man be saved? How can a woman be saved? How can a boy be saved? How can a girl be saved? Simply put, by stop looking at yourself. We look away from ourselves and we look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. His finished and complete and perfect and full work upon Calvary's cross. This is what Paul is all about in his epistle to the Galatians. Next slide, Teresa. A little bit of an introduction then to this book. My apologies to anyone sitting about halfway back. That's going to be a little bit of a test for your eyes. There you have a map. And the map obviously is of the eastern Mediterranean. And so point of reference, bottom right-hand corner, the city of Jerusalem. So far, so good? Wind your way up the eastern side there of the Mediterranean Sea. You come into Syria. And just there above that word Syria, you'll find the city of Antioch. In the year 45 A.D., more or less, that's where the Apostle Paul is living. And he's part of the church in Antioch. And one day, the Spirit of God sets Paul and Barnabas apart for the work to which he has called them. The work to which he has appointed them. And Paul and Barnabas, off they go. They set sail. And they head to the island of Cyprus. Right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And they arrive on the eastern shore and they travel to the western shore. And everywhere they go, they proclaim the gospel. Having traversed the island, they get on another ship and they sail to what was known as Asia Minor. Modern day, Turkey. And they land at a place called Perga, I think that is. And having preached the gospel there, they made their way inland by foot. And they come to the cities of Antioch, not the Antioch they left, a different Antioch, way up there in the middle. Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. You can read all about it in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14. Those four cities are located where? Galatia. And having preached the gospel in those places, and having established churches, they retraced their steps and went for home, straight for home, Antioch, and recorded to the church, gathered there, all that the Spirit had accomplished through their preaching of the word. That was their first missionary journey. Few years later, I think it's AD 49, they set off on a second missionary journey. This time they don't sail, but Paul takes Silas, he leaves Antioch in Syria, and travels by foot up around into Asia Minor, and he visits Those cities of Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, and Antioch. Those places where he had established churches on his first journey. And he keeps heading west, way over to Ephesus, and then even further into what? Macedonia and Greece, cities like Corinth, Thessalonica, Athens. And then he returns all the way back home to Antioch, his sending church. And then I think the year is fifty-one. Or 52 AD. Paul goes off on his third missionary journey. And where does he go? Again, he travels up through Turkey. He passes through the regions of Galatia. Undoubtedly visiting all those churches again. Heads westward into Macedonia and Greece again. And then eventually ends up way down there in the bottom right. In the city of Jerusalem. And there he is arrested. And there he is transported, is he not, all the way to the city of Rome where he awaits trial before the emperor. And on that note, the book of Acts closes. But you see, this region of Galatia and these cities and these churches figure prominently in the ministry, the three missionary journeys upon which the apostle Paul embarked. And as we read the book of Acts, these three missionary journeys, really from chapter 13 right through to chapter 21, we get some hints as to how the work was going. Next slide, Teresa. And I've just extracted three three statements from those chapters. Acts 13, verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. What region? It's Galatia. That's in view there. Acts chapter 14, verse 21, they appointed elders for them in every church. Every church they established in every city is now thriving and they've appointed leadership. Acts 16, verse 5, the churches, again, Luke is speaking of the churches in Galatia, were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And so the work has a fantastic start. I mean, Paul is preaching the gospel. The word of the Lord is spreading. As Christ reigns supreme over all things and reigns by his word and his spirit. And through the ministry of these apostles in this missionary band, as the word is proclaimed, the spirit of God works. Men and women receive. Hearts are opened. Churches are established. Leadership is appointed. And these churches are thriving. Something goes wrong. Uh, Something dreadfully goes wrong. We have a harbinger. There's a warning of it early on. Between the first and second missionary journey, as recorded in Acts 15, what happens? There are problems. Oh, the map is gone. But Antioch, the church that sent Paul out, there are problems in Antioch. What has happened? Judaizers have infiltrated the church and these individuals who have infiltrated the church are teaching that in order to be saved yes you must believe in Christ and you must be circumcised you must observe the mosaic law in order to truly be a follower of Christ it causes quite the stir as you can imagine it actually leads to the convening of a council in the city of Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas travel down to Jerusalem as representatives of the church in Antioch. A a decree is issued by that council in Jerusalem. But there we see very early on in the church's history, this struggle with the very essence of the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? How is a man, a woman made right in the sight of God? As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, the answer was simply this. In Christ alone. But there were those already, first century, as, or, you're only 15 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are already those who are inserting an element of works righteousness into the church, into the gospel, thereby corrupting the good news of salvation. And as this begins to take root in Galatia, as this begins to form this kind of opposition now in the cities of Galatia, uh, these churches turn in their opposition toward Paul. And they begin to ask really two questions. Next slide, Teresa. This is the last one. They begin to ask two questions, and this becomes evident in the letter as a whole. First of all, they begin to question the authority of Paul's mission. Who is this guy, and why should we care? Is he really an apostle? If he is an apostle, is he a sub-apostle? Why should we give any more attention to him than anyone else? Why should we listen to him as opposed to listen to these other teachers which we have in our church? They begin to question the authority of his mission. And secondly, they begin to question the accuracy of his message. We think he's got it wrong. Uh, We're now hearing something else. Uh, This is how we think uh, things should work. This is our understanding of the gospel. We're not sure Paul even is a man possessed with authority. We're not sure Paul even is a man who's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus. And now we're beginning to doubt and question the authenticity and accuracy of his message. This is the condition in which these churches find themselves in this region known as Galatia. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? You've guessed it. He picks up his pen and he, and he writes and follow along now as we've opened our Bibles to the book of Galatians and pay careful attention as I read his salutation to the churches of Galatia and keep in mind in particular, those two things which are on the screen, they are challenging, they're questioning his mission, his authority, and they're challenging and questioning his message. And so listen to how he now opens this letter, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the first thing Paul does in this salutation? He begins by defending the authority of Of his mission. Paul. An apostle. He could have left it there. And simply moved on. He adds three things. Firstly. Not from men. Nor through man. My apostleship. Its source is not from man. Its agency is not from man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so he is making it very clear as to who has sent him, as to who has commissioned him. Notice secondly, God the Father who raised him, that is raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does he insert The resurrection in his salutation. Why in his defense of his apostleship does he feel it necessary to mention the resurrection of Christ? I think his point might simply be this. Look, the other apostles appointed by Christ during the season of his humiliation. Me, appointed by Christ by virtue of his exaltation. It was the risen Christ who appeared to me on the road to Damascus. It was the resurrected Christ, the one ascended to the right hand of his Father, enthroned in majesty on high. My apostleship has not come from men, my apostleship has come from him, the risen Christ. And he adds, thirdly, and all the brothers who are with me, I'm not alone. Please understand churches in Galatia. You are opposing me. You have set yourselves up against me. You are questioning my authority. Please grasp, you are actually setting yourselves over against not just me, but all those who are with me. The brothers, the churches of Christ. And so Paul is making it clear from the outset, this is a subject he is going to hammer away at in the first two chapters. The authority behind his mission. You see, Paul clearly understands that when the Lord Jesus commissioned the disciples, when he said to them, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. That the Lord Jesus was investing them with divine authority. And he was calling them to a very specific, well-defined ministry in the establishment of the church. And Paul himself was added to that number. And Paul understood his ministry and his role as an apostle. An apostle, not a mere messenger, as the word is often used in the New Testament. Not a mere gospel preacher, as the word is often used in the New Testament. But as a commissioned, representative Of the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby invested with divine authority to such a degree that he could write to the church at Thessalonica When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God. So Paul's in quite the mood, isn't he? He's not messing around in this letter. He really isn't. He comes out swinging. Uh, Graciously, yes. Filled with the Spirit, undoubtedly. Tinged with compassion, unquestioningly. But the gospel is at stake. The gloves are off. And right from the outset, he makes it clear. You're questioning my authority. Please understand, I am sent by the risen Christ. And what I proclaim, the word we deliver to you is the word of God. He doesn't leave it there in his intro. He then addresses this second nagging issue and he defends the accuracy of his message. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is there a greater quest This is the human quest. This is the quest of all quests. How can we know the grace of God? And how can we experience peace uh, with God? These churches in Galatia, they are undermining Paul's message by denying that salvation is in Christ alone. And so Paul cuts right to the chase, third verse Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this grace, this peace, how? This is the question. This is the issue. This is the point of contention. How do these things come to you? How do we receive these things? And what does Paul do in the remainder of the salutation He grounds his answer on a historical event, grounds his answer in a person, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, salvation is in Christ alone. What I want you to notice is five things in that statement. Five things in verses 4 and 5. Five features of this gospel that Paul is proclaiming as he just gives this introductory defense as to the accuracy of his message. He's going to go on and he's going to defend his ministry, his mission in greater detail in chapters one and two. In chapters three and four, he's really going to get into detail, the nitty gritty as to defending his message. But here in his introduction, he's thrown both of them out there. These are the issues. Here they are. Let's just lay them on the table. And let me right from the outset state my position. Number one, my mission, I'm sent from God. And you better understand it. Therefore, what I am saying is the word of God. And secondly, when it comes to the gospel, how we receive the grace of God and how we experience peace with God, for me, it is rooted in a person. And we dare not add anything to it. Five things I want you to notice. The first is this, Christ gave himself. Outside of verse four. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. He gave himself by becoming a man, didn't he? The very incarnation. He gave himself by taking the form of a servant. He gave himself by living in a fallen world. He gave himself by ministering constantly to those in need. Gave himself by enduring opposition, resisting temptation, suffering arrest, suffering abuse, but far eclipsing all of these. What does the Apostle Paul have in mind? What is the Apostle Paul speaking of? Simply this. Christ gave himself. He gave himself by dying on the cross. It speaks of the voluntary nature of his sacrificial offering. Christ never hurled screams of rage toward the heavens. He never screamed threats of defiance toward the crowds. He never uttered sobs of self-pity. He never claimed his rights or promoted his interests. The Lord Jesus Christ never, ever considered himself. He gave himself, oh, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. That's the first feature, the first feature of Paul's gospel. Here's the second. Christ gave himself, right there in verse 4, for our In one of his sermons on this verse, Martin Luther proclaimed the following. These words, Christ gave himself for our sins, are thunderclaps from heaven against all self-righteousness. I was sound asleep, as I'm sure many of you were, the night before last. And I think it was maybe 3 o'clock in the morning, was it? I thought something had landed on the roof. Boom! And that thunderstorm rolled through. Those thunderclaps. So this phrase was already on my mind as that thunderstorm unleashed itself above Glen Rose. And how Martin Luther applied, used, made use of that, that image from creation. These words that Christ gave himself for our sins. These words are thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. Christ did not give himself to set an example for you. He did not give himself so that you might have a second chance in life. He did not give himself to show you just how particularly precious you are. He gave himself for sins. He gave himself because we have a most basic fundamental problem. And it is this. We are riddled from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet with sin. And we have a problem. It is our love of self. And this love of self manifests itself in 101 ways daily. And the most gross way in which it manifests itself is this. We are idolatrous by nature. And we will naturally incline, prostrate ourselves to anything but God. And God is offended beyond our wildest imagination. And the consequences of that offense, the consequences of that sin is what? His wrath. But here we have the Lord Jesus giving himself for our sins. Oh, again, Luther, it's a great phrase. One I heard years ago, never forgotten it. Luther we carry the nails of Calvary in our pocket. Right now, my friend, you've got the nails in your pocket. I have the nails in my pocket. It was my sin that nailed him there. He was not there by accident. He was not there because some great injustice was committed, although it was. He was not there again to just to demonstrate some sort of selfless act. He was not there because he was some sort of political rebel or or, or, or social revolutionary that that fell in disfavor with, with the governing authorities. He was there voluntarily and he gave himself for our sins. Oh, the poet writes, for Christ, my loving Savior hath, drunk up the wine of thy fierce wrath. What bitter cups were due to be, had he not drank them up for me. Oh, the cup was full to overflowing, my friend. The cup of God's righteous indignation. The cup of God's wrath towards sinners. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sin. The third feature of Paul's gospel is this. Christ gave himself to deliver us, right in the middle of the verse, fourth verse, to deliver us from the present evil age. The word in the Greek is used three times by Luke in the book of Acts. Let me share them with you, and it will help us really understand what this word means. Acts 7.34 I have surely seen the affliction. The Lord is speaking is reference to an historical event, the Exodus. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. Their condition is helpless. They are enslaved. Their condition is perilous. There is absolutely nothing they can do to help themselves as there they are languishing in the land of Egypt. God comes down to rescue them. Acts 12, 11, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter, he was in jail. In chains, in fetters, ball and chain, locked, sealed, locked away. And yet he was rescued, delivered, unable to deliver himself at the mercy of others. One more reference, Acts 23, verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews. It's a reference to Paul. He was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. But when I came upon them with the soldiers... I rescued him. He was about to be killed. He was about to be trampled. He was about to be torn limb from limb. I intervened and I delivered him. Back to our text in Galatians 1. The Lord Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. That is to rescue us. We were in a perilous condition, a life-threatening state, and we were in a helpless condition, there was nothing we could do to save or rescue or deliver ourselves, and to deliver us specifically from what? The present evil age. The present age is evil. Because sin permeates our personal lives. Sin permeates our social institutions. This present age has a prince, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, who works in the hearts of men and women all sorts and forms of unrighteousness. But as those who've been rescued, as those who belong to the Lord Jesus, we no longer belong to the present age. We are members of the age to come. The age to come has already dawned. We await its fullness at Christ's return, but we are already members of that age to come. We're no longer enslaved as those who've been rescued. We're no longer enslaved to the pride, the greed, the anger, The pessimism, the darkness, the selfishness, the foolishness that marks this present age. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given himself up for our sins. And in so doing, he has rescued us. But there's a fourth feature of Paul's gospel. Here it is. Christ gave himself, the remainder of verse 4 into verse 5. He gave himself according to the will. Of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Note, firstly, the significance of this statement that he gave himself. He gave himself according to the will of our God and Father. He gave himself, in other words, to to fulfill the will of our God and Father. You see, there was nothing compelling in us that caused him to give himself. Did you hear that? There was nothing compelling in us that caused him to give himself. Similarly, there was nothing lacking in him that caused him to give himself. He did not give himself upon Calvary's cross for sins to rescue us because he looked at us and he saw something worthy, something admirable, Something lovable. Nothing could be further from the truth. And he did not give himself on the cross for sins to rescue us because something was lacking in him. He had a need to meet. No. He gave himself. Why? Simply because it was the good pleasure, the will of his God and Father. Oh, the lesson here. The lessons here are multiple. Do we get this? Do we understand that this gospel, this grace, this peace that comes from God, this is a sovereign grace. This is a grace that God pours out in the life of the sinner, lavishes upon the sinner, not because of anything in the sinner, but because of his own just liberty, his own pleasure in doing so, the manifestation of his undeserving grace. It is according to the will of our God and Father. Oh, do I dare satisfy myself? When I think of God's sovereign grace, do I dare satisfy myself with my perceived accomplishments? Do I dare comfort myself by comparing myself to others? Do I dare take refuge in my conduct, in my causes? in my convictions as that which sets me apart? Do I dare react with sensitivity, become sensitive when criticized? Do I dare become harsh in my handling of others in the face of their weaknesses? Or in the light in the face of God's sovereign grace? Am I simply a weak child hiding in Christ's righteousness? If I'm not, then I don't really get it. I don't really get it. I don't really get that it is all a gift. I don't really understand that the only reason Christ has been so merciful to me is because it pleased his Father to do so. That is it. That there was nothing in me that drew him to me. There was nothing in me that set me apart. There was nothing in me that I had done to earn it. Somehow my merits, weighing up the merits. No, it was God's good pleasure alone. Oh, Christ gave himself according to the will of our God and Father. But there's a fifth feature. And you're a little worried because we've run out of room in these verses. There's a fifth feature. I'm not seeing anything. Flip over a page. Chapter 2. Flip over a page. Verse 20. Perhaps the most important verse. Perhaps the key verse in the entire epistle. Chapter 2, verse 20. And here we find a a fifth feature of the gospel that Paul preaches. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, there's our phrase again, gave himself for me. It's the same phrase Paul used back in chapter 1, the third verse, the fourth verse. Christ gave himself for our sins. Here you have it again in Galatians 2.20. He gave himself for me. And how does he preface it here? The Son of God loved me And gave himself for me. Here's the fifth feature then. Christ gave himself. Because he set his love upon us. He exchanged wealth for poverty. He exchanged majesty for humility. He exchanged a throne for a manger. He exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He was ridiculed, harassed, betrayed, arrested, and condemned. He was pierced with thorns, scourged with cords. He climbed a shameful cross where he gave himself for my sins to rescue me from this present evil age. And he did this because he intentionally set his love upon me first little song i ever learned and i'm sure i'm not alone uh, many of you will remember this one fondly undoubtedly jesus loves me this i know for the bible tells me so does it get any more profound than that i don't think it does a simple children's chorus and yet one that has grown in depth of meaning ever since i was a small boy three simple facts Jesus loves me. He loves me. Fact number two, I know it's true. And fact number three, why? Because the Bible tells me so. That when I look at Calvary's cross and I see that bloody pulverized flesh and I hear that cry of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There I have the greatest demonstration of the love of of God for me, a sinner, not a love I have earned, not a love because he saw anything in me, but a love that before the foundation of time he chose to set upon me and in a moment of time pour out so beautifully and wonderfully in the giving of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray we can all utter that simple phrase, Jesus loves me. Uh, This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It satisfies our deepest longing, doesn't it? I mean, the deepest longing, uh, we can trace our deepest longing to what? Our separation from God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who do we find? God. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, God becomes to us what? Our Father. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the truth of of his love for us. A love that defies explanation. A love that overwhelms imagination. A love that resides in the eternal counsels of his will. A love that is unalterable. A love that is unchangeable. A love, which its its breadth, its depth, its length, its height are beyond measure. A love that even as we begin to catch the slightest inkling of it, it is as though we are filled up to all fullness. Oh, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. Salvation in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul, he's, excuse the expression, he's put his cards on the table, hasn't he? You've got problems, Galatia. You've got huge problems. And we're going to deal with them. And we're going to deal with them. Number one, we're going to be very clear as to the authority of my mission. And number two, we are going to be very clear as to the accuracy of my message. There is only one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And it is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is going to go on. He's going to explain it. He's going to defend it. He's going to counterattack as he lays bare this great biblical reformation, GCC truth, that salvation is in Christ alone. I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? I trust I'm preaching to the choir. But there may very well be someone here this morning for whom this is a novelty. This is something of an enigma, something unknown. Go all the way back to that opening quote from Martin Luther. Where does it all begin? By identifying our own wretchedness. Our condition before a holy God. And exactly what it is we merit from a holy God. And understanding that provision, oh, bountiful provision for the salvation of sinners has been made through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who come to faith in him. Our Father, we do pray that as we study your word together, study this epistle. That you would give us understanding from on high. That you would enlarge our grasp of the gospel and your grace toward us in Christ. And that you would correspondingly heighten our love for you. And appreciation of your love for us. May our hearts truly be warm this day as we consider Christ as we look to Him. And may you help us to fix our eyes, our spiritual eyes upon Him. And in Him find great joy, great peace, great comfort. And we ask it for your eternal glory. Amen.